We're in this eight-week series called Disciple, and we're looking at what it is to be a follower of Jesus, how it works, how do you, be- how do you become more of a follower, an apprentice, a learner of Jesus, and we're looking at the different things that go into making somebody someone who follows Jesus and learns to be like him and grows into his likeness, and we're doing that from the book of Philippians, so if you have a Bible and can turn to the letter to the Philippians, that would be great. Uh, we've been looking at, actually breaking the letter down into eight chunks and looking at the different things that go into making people a disciple. We, first week we said discipleship's about partnership. It's about being alongside other people in a community with meaningful relationships and cooperation in the gospel. And then last week Steve was looking at how discipleship is also about hardship. It's about the tough things that happen in your life. It's about you going through the mill and as you do, finding God in it as God carries you through and teaches you things in the process. And you almost can't become a disciple without hardship. And this week we're going to be looking at another one based out of uh, Philippians chapter 2. And uh, while you're turning there, let me just ask you this question to get you thinking. How would you describe, in a sentence, how would you describe the difference between what a Christian believes and what a secular person believes and does? How would, how would you describe the difference in a sentence? Like this, the simplest way of summarizing what a Christian believes versus what a secular person believes is something. Because I don't actually think it's very easy. I gave it some thought and I was thinking a lot of the obvious answers don't work. Like you can't, for instance, say, well, obviously Christians believe in God. You think, yeah, but a lot of secular people believe in God. Like lots of people today. You know, 60% of people in this country would believe in God. And you can't really say, well, a Christian wants to imitate Jesus or wants to live like Jesus. Because actually a lot of people, whether they believe in Jesus or not, whether they follow him or not, would still say, well, he's a good example to live by. I, I like Jesus as a moral example. You'd also, if you said, well, Christians believe Jesus is risen from the dead, I'd say, well, that's obviously definitely true. But even then, there's still a lot of people who would say, oh, I'm not a Christian, but I still think Jesus maybe, maybe he did rise from the dead. And it doesn't necessarily come through into changing their entire lives to be centered on that reality. So what is the difference? How would you summarize it? I don't think it's very straightforward. We're going to come back to that question in just a moment. We're going to start to read Philippians 2. Actually going to start in Philippians 1 and verse 27. Philippians 1, 27. And this is one of the greatest passages in the whole of Scripture. It will be much familiar to and loved by many of us, I'm sure. Philippians 1, 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ... So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirits, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, 
who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant or a slave, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved... As you have always obeyed, so now. Not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is the word of God. Discipleship is about lordship. It's about the recognition and the delight that Jesus is Lord, not just of the world, but of your own life, and not just of your life, but of the whole world. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, and every tongue confess, Jesus Christ is Lord. That's where history's heading. That's where Christianity ends, if you like, and that's also where Christianity starts. Uh, The acknowledgement that Jesus, crucified and risen, is the exalted Lord and the unrivaled master of your life and the king of the entire world. And that's from the beginning what Christians have captured Christianity as being. You are somebody in the first century. What is Christianity? How would you summarize it in a handful of words? I think that many of them would have said, Jesus is Lord. That's the summary. And in English, Jesus is Lord or Jesus Christ is Lord, just three or four words. In Greek, it's two. Jesus Kurios, Jesus, Lord. That's how they'd summarize it. And so Paul would say, you know, if you, you, you confess with your mouth, Jesus, Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. That's what a Christian is. It's a person who believes in the resurrection and declares the lordship of Jesus Christ over all things and over themselves. And so a disciple is someone who recognizes that reality and joyfully submits to it, delights in it, and stands under the lordship of Jesus Christ. In this church, when we baptize people, they go down into the... I was there when Chris was baptized just a few months back, and he sort of goes in and, again, have to say exactly that declaration, as everyone does. Jesus is Lord. That's part of what it means to become a Christian. And so we're saying, as we do that, Jesus is the king, and he's in charge of me, and he gets to tell me what to do, and I belong to him, and I follow him. That's what discipleship is about. And that's how I would summarize the difference between the Christian way of life and the secular way of life. Actually, it's say, yeah, what, things you believe, and you probably believe a lot of things that are very similar. My, my friends who are not Christians like me would have huge amounts in common in the way we talk and think and dress and lots and lots of things. But the difference would be that I would make, my gospel would be that Jesus is Lord and I belong to him. And a lot of them might say, actually, I am Lord and I belong to me. And I was really struck by that um, distinction as I was reading an article just a few weeks ago from a humanities professor in the States. And he was, he, was trying to, he was dealing with why there was sometimes a clash. In this particular case, it was a clash between the secular left in America and Christians. And I think, by the way, exactly the same is true of the secular right. He's not making a political case. It just happened that this is what his article was about. But he wrote this. I thought it was very insightful. He said, they do not think of themselves as opponents of religion. And they're not given their definition of religion, 
which is a disembodied Gnostic realm of private worship and thought. That is, so long as you guys keep your Christianity to your private space on Sundays, we're fine. You do whatever you like. But that is not what Christianity is. Christianity intrinsically necessarily involves embodied action in the public world. And this, the secular left, he's saying, cannot and will not tolerate if it can help it. Because it rightly understands that Christianity stands opposed to the secular left's own gospel. Which popular opinion notwithstanding is not about sex, essentially. But rather may be summed up as, I am my own. And I thought that was such a helpful comment because we're saying the reason why you sometimes have clashes often between a secular government and the church, you'd think, why didn't the secular government just let the church just get on? Not just secular government, by the way, media elites and so on. Why don't you just let, you should let everyone believe what they like? I said, well, you, you do that until the Christian says, no, 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 but Jesus isn't just Lord of the private bit. He's not just Lord of this bit of my life. He's Lord of everything in my life. And he's Lord of everything in the world. And that from the very foundation of the church has been a clash between the church and people who are not in the church. And so in the Roman Empire, if you say Jesus is Lord, you're saying, and Caesar is not, sorry, right? He might be fine, he might be, might be a good in a number of ways, thanks for the roads, but in the end, he's not Lord. Jesus is Lord, and that provides a public clash at the level of allegiance, doesn't it? And it still does today. And so I was thinking about that quote, and that summary, I am my own, and as soon as I read it, it made my, life, my mind connect with another completely different kind of document, which is written nearly 500 years ago in German for all that. But some of you heard me quote it before, the Heidelberg Catechism. And it, but this is a summary of the Christian gospel, and it's the opposite of that. And I love it because it's so... It, I love that somebody said, how are we going to teach German peasants what Christianity is? And the first thing they wanted them to know was what we're about to read. It's the opposite of that, I am my own. This is the very first question out of 130 that they went through people saying, this is what Christian teaching means. First question, what is your only comfort in life and in death? Answer, that I am not my own, but I belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful saviour, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and he has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. What's more, he also watches over my life in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together to my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. That's the first thing they wanted people to know. How do you find hope in life? What makes you feel secure when you go to sleep at night? Oh, I tell you, it's this. I'm not my own. I belong to my Lord. And he is in charge of my life and I'm not mine. And so if the secular gospel is I am Lord and I am mine, the Christian gospel is Jesus is Lord and I am his. And though there may be overlap on many other matters, at that point there is a sharp difference because discipleship is about lordship. So what's that mean in practice? Well, in this passage, Paul gives three examples of what the lordship of Jesus looks like in the lives of the Philippians. They're not the only ones, but they're three pretty good ones to get started. And the first one is unity. The first, this is what it will look like when you are under the lordship of Jesus. It will involve unity. Verses 1 to 2. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, comfort from love, participation in the Spirit, affection and sympathy, then complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. 
Discipleship, lordship, will look like unity with other believers. That's the first obvious step. You become a believer and you find yourself, without even knowing it, welcomed into a family that comprises billions of people. And you now have a responsibility to express your life in a way that is united with them, even where sometimes you come from massively different places in terms of your background, context, culture, theology even, and you'll find yourself aligned and united with them. So that's one thing it means. Second thing that Paul's clear on, verses 3 to 4, it involves humility. Lordship requires humility. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interest of others. Discipleship and lordship will look like humility. It will, because you end up saying, if Jesus is Lord, I'm not in charge. I don't call the shots anymore. So I'm now going to defer to people based on his example, as we'll see in a few minutes. And the third thing it will look like is it look like obedience. And this you get in this in verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And so those three things are always going to be part of the package of what it looks like to have Jesus as Lord in your life. But my experience is that some of that happens instantly, and some of it takes an entire lifetime of work. And I find that both and rather difficult to navigate, not actually just as a pastor, but as a Christian. I think, no, this is a challenge, isn't it? Because some of this happens immediately. There's a sense in which you cannot become a Christian in the first place without going through it on a journey of unity, humility, and obedience. And actually, Chris's story that we've just heard expresses that really well. He's saying, well, really, what happened was, when I wanted to follow Jesus, I have to repent of my sin and acknowledge that he is in charge, and he's good, and I haven't always been good, and I want to repent. You see, that's an act of humility right there. You can't become a Christian unless you humble yourself beneath the hand of God and say, God is right, and often I've been wrong. That's humility. And then Chris said, of course, and I had to obey him in his summons to be baptized in water. So you can't actually, and then of course, he didn't say this, but it's true as well. You then find yourself in a church united with other people. You've got to work that through as well in unity. So you can't really become a believer in the first place without going on some sort of journey around humility, obedience, and unity. In a sense, it happens straight away, day one. But my experience is that that's not the whole story because there's a whole load of aspects of your life in which you do not find unity, humility, and obedience. In fact, sometimes you're not even aware that you are not obedient or not humble for many years. So you might be in that fortunate camp of people here today who became a believer and instantly you found all three of those things. I I think other people are more important than me. And I obey everything Jesus says. And I love it. And I'm nice as well. And I'm like going, man, that was not my sanctification journey. Because I came to Jesus in a sense, in those three things all happened in a sense when I first stepped in. But then, of course, you find that whole areas of your life in which there is no humility at all. And which you aren't even aware that you are being thoroughly disobedient. And what I found was, some issue, on some issues, God instantly highlighted them and said, this is an issue you need to die to now. So for me, I found you'd become a believer. My sexuality was an area where I think, God, I know I cannot just say, Jesus, I worship you, but this is something I'm going to do whatever I like. It's just not that kind of a thing. I knew that. But there were other areas where I thought, I wasn't even aware when I became a believer that this was a problem in my life. It took me years before I even noticed that it was wrong, let alone started to do anything about it. So this would be on an issue like arrogance or pride. So humility. Some of you, a handful of you, knew me at the time, 15, 20 years ago, and you would have said, my goodness, not only is that guy 
breathtakingly arrogant, he doesn't even realize he is. And actually, I f- what's worrying about that, two things. One, of course, sorry, um, but two, that means that in 20 years' time, 59-year-old Andrew will look back at 39-year-old Andrew and go, wow, when I was 39, I didn't know that loads of things now are an issue in my life, that Jesus is going to keep bringing me under his lordship between now and then. And I'm going to spend the, my 40s and 50s working on something as I've had to work in my 20s and 30s on humility and so on. And some of you are in your 80s going, man, if I could just give my 60-year-old self a bit of a telling off, this is what I'd say. Because it's a lifetime of work. And so in a sense, it happens straight away as you join the, first join the family of God. But in another sense, it's a lifetime because Christianity is really not a pavement. It's a path, isn't it? It's a long series of walking over the same bit of ground. And I find that can be a challenge. And I know that that journey will continue every day of my life until the day when every single one of us and billions of others will kneel down and bow down before the one who is Lord and declare him with our mouths, Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God. Until that day, these things are going to keep growing in our lives and we're going to have to keep yielding to the Lordship of Jesus. So that's what, in this text at least, that's what Paul would say it looked like. But I find that challenging. I find it hard to live in the meantime. And so it's also worth asking, how does that happen? How do I do those things? How, or how, do those, what, how does God do those things in my life, perhaps? How do we come little by little, more and more, under the Lordship of Jesus Christ? And again, Paul, I think, gives three ways in which it happens in this text, and they're not the only ones. The first one he mentions pretty briefly, but in, in verse 1, he mentions participation in the Spirit, which is a beautiful phrase. Right? If you are participating in the Spirit, that is, if you are sharing in the gift of the Holy Spirit and you are a partner with him, even as we saw two weeks ago, you are a partner in the gospel with the church, then you'll find these things will begin to flow in your life. Right? You, you, you're a partner with the Spirit. The Spirit is a, somebody in whom you share and somebody with whom you do what you do. So when you go about your daily life, you do it partnering with and participating in him. And that's one of the ways in which these things come about in your life. He doesn't develop the point, but it's worth mentioning he mentions it. The second one, which he spends a bit more time on, is he says this, this kind of thing happens through the power of God. It comes through the power of God, and this is where I, I get this from, the, from verses 12 to 13, and this really quite mind-bending sentence, if you think about it for too long, verses 12 to 13. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, because it is God who works in you to will and to work according to his good pleasure. Work because God is working in you. Will to work because God is the one who's willing to work within you. What? How am I supposed to do that? Like, this sounds bizarre. How, who's doing the willing and the working? Is it me or is it God? And Paul goes, yeah. At which point, philosophers go, hmm, let's spend, write books about that and call it compatibilism, which they do. And the rest of us are left going, I do not understand how this could possibly be true, that God and I could both be willing and working in me at the same time. How is that a thing? And yet, even if at a philosophical level we don't understand it, there is great relief to me and probably to many of us that we don't have to understand it, we just have to do it. And I'll tell you what this looks like in practice, even if I don't know what it looks like in theory. In practice, have you had this experience? You're walking along the street, you're daydreaming, thinking about something that's your holiday or something, right? 
And suddenly, out of nowhere, a thought comes into your head. You should pray for that person. Text that person and encourage them. Stop and talk to that lady that you hadn't even seen who's sitting at the bus stop. You had that kind of experience. Happens all the time. Now, in some ways, that in practice is a much easier way to understand what Paul is saying than the theology behind it, I think. Because you say, yeah, at that point, the will to do that work didn't come from me. I wasn't thinking about it at all. I was away on my holiday, and God somehow grabbed hold of my will and moved it somewhere else. And so I went, oh, now I actually need to do something in response. And that might be true of all manner of things in your life. And I find that that, in some ways, at a practical level, helps us where, at a theoretical level, we might be struggling. Illustrate the point. Moses is going to come out. Now, one of the things you may not know about my friend Moses is that despite living in the Lewisham area, he's actually a pilot of a large gas ships. Okay, he's not really, but we're going to pretend that he is. And in fact, you will, it will quickly become apparent from his miming that he isn't. Um, but Moses, Moses is responsible for the steering of large gas ships. So when I was um, a kid, we spent a, a lot of my grandparents had a, a yacht in Cornwall. And so we spent a lot of time down in Cornwall on the river going up and down and so on. And they have these massive container ships and gas ships that would sail up the river that my, parent, my grandparents lived on, called the River Fowl. It's a big, very deep channel river in Cornwall. That means that these huge ships can go a long way upriver and remain safe. So that's what they do. And so Moses is a pilot of one of those, okay? And so he's, he takes hold of the, the wheel of the ship, and he, he's used to the open ocean, and he does his sort of steering. Um, as you can see, he's well experienced at this kind of thing. Um, there we go. <laughs> Ten to two, you'll notice, right? It's exactly the same as a car. It's really striking. And, um, and so he's steering out at the, the sea. But what happens is as he approaches the river estuary, he will radio for a harbour pilot. A harbour pilot is somebody like me who comes into the ship specifically for the process of trying to navigate the river estuary so he doesn't crash. Because Moses is fine on the open ocean, but when he gets into the river, there's a lot of complexity and channels and tides and sandbanks, and he's not so sure what to do. So Moses says, I need a harbour pilot, please. And the harbour pilot steps in and says, okay, I'm here to help. And he goes, okay, why don't you take the wheel? And I'll be just sitting down. And I go, no, 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 no. I cannot take the wheel because you are legally and morally accountable for this ship. If I take the wheel, just take over, then I might, and I make a mistake, I'm going to be liable. I need you. You are liable. This is your problem. But what I will do is I will stand alongside you, willing and working according to your good, my good pleasure. They probably don't use exactly that phrase, but that's the, that's the gist. And so I say, right, so Moses, so what I want you to do, uh, just 10 degrees port, please. Okay, hold it there. That's good. And slow down. Slow right down. Slow right down, okay? Again, in just the same position as the car, you'll notice it's incredible, isn't it? The gear stick, it's all there. Um, Who knew that steering a container ship was as easy as this? And slow right down, okay, there's a sandbank just now, 20 degrees starboard very quickly, that's good, because otherwise you're going to hit that and run adrift, and so on. And that's what he does, and in fact, there have been occasions when pilots have ignored the harbour pilot and have ended up crashing ships. So this is is a, a real thing that actually happens. And of course, he then is a, finally, they get to a point where they're able to moor the boat, drop anchor, and the harbour pilot can say, well done, you're here, you've made, you've made safety. Now, the same thing happens in the Christian life. You and I, Moses becomes a believer, and he goes, I need God because I do not know how to do this. And so he radios for help and says, Lord, I am floundering here. I don't know how to live a life of unity, humility, and obedience. Would you help me? And the Holy Spirit arrives and says, I'm here to help. That's exactly what I'm here to do. We're going to help you come under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And then Moses goes, that's wonderful, Holy Spirit. Come and take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord. I'm going to drop the wheel and you just take over. And the Holy Spirit says, whoa, whoa, whoa. 
I cannot take over your moral agency. Jesus died for you so you could get your freedom back. I'm not going to take it from you. But what I will do is I will stand alongside you to will and to work according to my good pleasure. And I will suggest, do you know what? You actually might need to spend a little bit less time with her and a little bit more time with him. And you might need to spend a little bit less time doing that. And you might want to use your money to do a bit more of this and a bit less of that. You might want to, that habit, that's going to need to go. You, that, you want to really cultivate more of this. I, I'm going to put ideas and thoughts in your mind. And as I do, you will end up again, 10 to 2, you're going to end up making decisions until the day when you finally reach safety. And I can check out and say, it's done. You are now conformed to the likeness of Christ. Okay, let's thank Moses, shall we? God working within you to will and to work according to his good pleasure. So that's how it happens. Participation in the Spirit the power of God, and thirdly, we come under the lordship of Jesus through the pattern of Christ, right? The pattern of Christ. This is, in some ways, the most encouraging of the three. Paul says to them, in verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, right? I hear things like, be humble, be united, be obedient. I think that's not just difficult, that's impossible, and what happens is God says, oh, no, it is yours in Christ Jesus to think like that because you are now united with Christ as a believer. So having become united with Jesus, you find Jesus humbles himself to serve other people. And you are in Christ, so you also will humble yourself to serve other people. This pattern of thinking that Jesus has is yours in Christ Jesus. Not just something you're commanded to do, it's something that's somehow given to you in Christ. And so what we... We yield to the lordship of Jesus through observing his pattern and finding it more and more becomes true in our lives. And I think if Jesus had that glory and majesty and left it all in order to become this, to serve and die as a slave, then I think I can probably drop a few things I treasure in order to serve other people as well. And not only can I think that way, but God will actually give it to me that I act that way through my union with him. And so this is the pattern of Christ we're going to conclude with and remind ourselves what the pattern of Christ actually is. And this beautiful text that many of us know and think, yeah, God has exalted him. We love this passage, probably many of us, but this is written in Paul's mind to try and help Christians understand how having the mind of Christ will change their lives, how thinking the way he does will shape all that they are. And it's one of the most beautiful summaries of the gospel anywhere in Scripture, And it's going to be a great basis to invite people to come and share the Lord's Supper in just a moment. Though he was in the form of God, he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a slave. Not just taking the form of a human, taking the form of somebody who serves other humans in often, in his case, a very degrading and humiliating way, being born in the likeness of men. He had everything and he became nothing so that you and me who have nothing might inherit everything. He came in humility to redeem our humanity. He became enslaved so that you and I might become saved. That's what he did. That's the shape of the gospel. That's the pattern of Christ. And being found in human form, he humbled himself, yet lower, by becoming obedient. What does it look like for God to be obedient to God? You know, the Son of God, obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So he lived the life that we should have lived, 
And then he died the death that we should have died. He gave up his fame and he came and he took all the blame and then rose to proclaim that all who lay claim to his death will not stay the same but be free from their shame and find life in his name. And therefore, God has highly exalted him. Not just put him up there again. I'm going to put you back where you were. I'm going to highly exalt you and given him the name that is above every single name. So that at the name of Jesus, every single knee, no matter what, where it is in the world, no matter what color it is, no matter what background the person has, they're all going to bow down at the same time and declare with their mouth, Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Because no one on seeing this vindicated, crucified Savior is going to be able to help themselves saying, that guy, he's He's the master. He's the king. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I'm not my own. I belong, body and soul, to my faithful saviour, Jesus Christ, because he's forgiven me from all my sin and he set me free from the tyranny of the devil. And it's that moment that history is heading towards and it's that moment that we get to taste now as we come and share in communion. As we, if you like, put aside some of the things we brought with us and say, Jesus, I want to take hold of the bread and the wine, and in doing so, celebrate and participate again in the body and blood of Jesus broken for me. If you are one of those people, and many of us are, who would say, yeah, Jesus Christ is Lord. I belong to him. I'm not mine. You say, where's your comfort in life and in death? I don't say, I am my own. I say, I am not my own. I am Jesus's. If you are in that, if you're one of those people, and many of us are, Please, no matter what kind of church background you come from, join us in the Lord's Supper as we go to the tables in a moment and take bread and wine. Because this is something for all, this is what unites us. And if you're not, if you're today saying, do you know what, I'm, I'm interested, that's why I'm here, I'm curious, but I'm not, at the moment, I wouldn't say Jesus is my Lord. I'd say, that's wonderful to have you with us, and we're so glad you're here. Can I say, why not take this opportunity to say, I'm going to bow my knee before Jesus the Lord. I'm going to confess with my mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Father, we thank you so much for the wonder of King Jesus. We thank you so much for the kind of Lord he is. Thank you that he's the kind of Lord who lays aside his majesty and becomes nothing for us in order to be to our rescuer, our lover, and our savior, and then to restore us to, to fellowship with God. We are so grateful for him, and we pray that even now as we come and share in the Lord's Supper, you would join us together in worship and adoration, and that we would step further and further into the Lordship of Jesus until the day when every knee bows and every tongue confesses that he's Lord. We thank you for Jesus, and we pray this in his name. Amen.